Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm very excited today to welcome Dr. Peter Glidden. He's a naturopathic physician. He is the author of a new book called The MD Emperor Has No Clothes, an eye-opening book that puts whole systems together about medical treatments, about nutrition, about the nutrients that are missing. There's going to be a lot of shocks in this book when you read it. Dr. Glidden has worked with a very, very well-known man named Dr. Wallach, who wrote Dead Doctors Don't Lie, and who has been educating the world about nutrients for many, many years. Our guest is extremely outspoken because he's so passionate about you being well. Ladies and gentlemen, give a warm welcome to Dr. Peter Glidden today. <laughs> oh, well, what a wonderful introduction, Kim. Thank you so much. Thanks for providing the platform, the microphone, and the megaphone for myself and others to, uh, you know, tell it like it is because we're, we're suffering needlessly in this country, and I just couldn't be happier to be here with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'd like to invite you to explain naturopathic medicine to us, how it's distinct from what we understand medicine to be today and why you became an ND, that's N like Nancy, not an MD, is in Mary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they couldn't, it's, it's think... too bad it wasn't QD, right? <laughs> <laughs> Explain it to us. What is the distinction? Okay, very good. Well, in order to become a naturopathic physician, an ND, naturopathic doctor, you have to do four years of pre-med, I did that at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, graduated in 1987. Then you have to do four years at an accredited naturopathic medical school. And currently there are only five. There are only five accredited naturopathic medical schools in North America. One's in Seattle, one's in Portland, one's in Scottsdale, Arizona. One is in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and one is up in Canada, I believe in Toronto. Uh, when you're a naturopathic medical student, it's a full-blown medical degree. It's four years of medical education. You know, it's anatomy and physiology and pathology and cadaver dissection and diagnostic stuff and the whole nine yards. And uh, the education of a naturopath in the basic sciences is exactly the same as it is for an MD. The only place actually where our educations are different is in the application of therapeutics. Now, naturopathic physicians, surprisingly enough, are taught prescription drugs and minor surgery. So, and depending on the state that we live in and work in, we have prescriptive rights. For instance, in Seattle, Washington, where I lived for and worked for a number of years as a naturopathic physician, uh, I could prescribe drugs, deliver babies perform minor surgery, work in hospitals, uh, legally call myself a physician, order any diagnostic test that I wanted to, and it was all covered by insurance. Now, in the great state of Illinois, where I now reside, if I was to do exactly the same thing that I did in Seattle, I'd be thrown in jail for a year and fined $5,000 for practicing medicine without a license. That's because medicine has been monopolized in the United States in the last hundred years, and we can get into that shortly. And that's a, this is a, uh, a point that everybody needs to understand. There is not a free medical market in the United States. It does not exist. Medicine has been monopolized by the MDs for the last hundred years. 
and it's a problem. And we're going to talk about that shortly, I hope. But back to naturopathy, the uh, kind of zone of education that naturopathic physicians are trained in, which is different from every other healthcare practitioner, is in the fields of uh, which is collectively referred to as holistic medicine, holistic medicine. So clinically, naturopathic physicians are taught science-based, clinically verified, non-drug therapies, things like homeopathy and medical nutrition. Before you go any further, I want you to define to the best of your ability homeopathy. Well, you're making it easy for me now, right? <laughs> homeopathy <laughs> is uh, somewhat of a complicated uh, subject now. Historically, homeopathy uh, was a separate and distinct medical profession, you know, like nature, naturopathy and chiropractic and acupuncture and botanical medicine and homeopathy and allopathy. Allopathy, allopathic medicine is what MDs are trained in. MDs don't own medicine. MDs are trained in one piece of the medical pie that but they have pitched it to us for the last hundred years as being the everything and you know everybody else the homeopaths the chiropractors the naturopaths they're all back of the bus quacks and it's the mds practicing allopathic reductionistic pharmaceutical centrist medicine these guys are the kings of everything right and it couldn't be further from the truth homeopathy is one section a subsection of the greater umbrella of holistic medicine and years ago in the United States, the homeopathic medical profession was a separate and distinct organization. You know, there were homeopathic medical schools, there were homeopathic hospitals, there were homeopathic pharmacies. And homeopathic medicine uh, is of the belief that illness can be eliminated by virtue of a law of nature called the law of similars. And I definitely want you to explain this. This is fascinating. So if you went to see a homeopathic doctor and you had a migraine headache and that migraine felt to you like your head was going to explode, like a balloon being filled with air and it was just going to pop, the homeopathic doctor would reference his research material and discover a medicine which, when given to a healthy person, would produce exactly the same symptom of the head feeling as if it were going to explode. Now, if I had another patient who had a migraine headache that felt as if their head was being squeezed in a vice, then as a homeopath, I would give that patient a different medicine, a medicine which, when given to somebody healthy, produced the sensation that their head was being squeezed between a vice. And similar to the way that vaccinations are supposed to work, uh, when you take a homeopathic medicine which mimics your organic symptoms exactly, uh, the body is brought into a state of balance and the illness disappears. Uh, it's a fascinating system of medicine. However, ironically and regretfully, uh, at the turn of the century, in the early 1900s in the United States, that's really when the MDs started to monopolize and dominate the field of medicine in the United States. The law of similars, though, how did that come about? And that seems to be the foundation for homeopathic medicine. So tell me about the law of similars. 
when you say you're going to give a similar medicine to the kind of symptom you have, when you say medicine, what do you mean? You mean pharmaceuticals or something else? Okay, so that's a good point. Homeopathic physicians are, utilize as medicines substances from everywhere. Some of the medicines that we use come from the plant kingdom, you know, like botanical medicine, like echinacea or golden seal. Uh, some of our medicines come from the mineral kingdom, like sulfur or calcium. Some of our medicines have animal derivations, like bee venom or snake venom. And some homeopathic medicines are made from chemical substances, like uh, potassium bromide or salts of different, uh, different organic compounds. However, regardless of the raw material that we are starting with, to make the medicine homeopathic, the medicine has to go through a series of uh, uh, something called serial dilutions, which the result of which is a homeopathic medicine. It's kind of like starting with grapes and, you know, ending up with wine. Right. right? Well, you know, wine is very different than the grape, but that's what it came from. Well, when you prepare a substance homeopathically, the resultant medicine that you have acquired has very different properties than the raw material that you started with. And this is perhaps the greatest field of controversy in the, the world of homeopathic medicine. There are actually five laws of home, homeopathy. This law is called the law of serial dynamization and potentization. So when we start, for instance, with the raw material gold, let's say we take gold and we powder it and we mix the gold with some water and then we prepare the powdered gold into a homeopathic medicine. The actual medicine that we are using to deliver to the patient has been diluted so much that the possibility of even one molecule of gold existing in the final product are infinite, which means that we've diluted the medicine so much that there isn't any gold left in it. However, when we deliver the homeopathic preparation of dilute gold to an animal or a human being, it produces profound physiological change. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, gold in its organic metallic state is inert. And, you know, back in the day when knucklehead MDs didn't know what else to do for arthritis, which, by the way, is one of the easiest things in the world to treat, they used to inject gold into people's joints because gold was inert and it had no chemical reactions inside the body. They, you know, they use it as kind of a, as kind of like a solidifying agent for the joint, right? However, gold in its metallic state is inert in the physical body. But when you prepare gold into a homeopathic medicine, it is a profound antidepressant. It is a profound antidepressant. And so when you prepare something homeopathically, you alter its properties. But the preparation process apparently seems to break the laws of physics as we know it, as we know them, because really there should be no more material substance left in the, in the dilution, but yet the dilutions produce uh, remarkable change consistently, whether it's given to an animal or a human being every time. And the naysayers of homeopathy say that, oh, this is all just placebo and it's nonsense. And they is it be from the truth. 
could it be because the frequency of whatever it is that you've diluted has the potency in it as well? Well, we don't know. And there are a lot of theories as to how the homeopathic dilution works. You know, there's a, an electromagnetic gate theory. There's, a, a, you know, a, a resonance theory. I mean, there's all these ideas that people have, but nobody knows. It's kind of like gravity. Homeopathic medicines are like a gravity. We can see that they produce an effect. We can measure gravity, but we have no earthly idea what causes it. I mean, not even Einstein knew what caused gravity. String theory and, and all these theories sure. about what caused nobody knows. But why the level of dilution? How did that come to be a standard? That happened because back in the 1800s, when homeopathic medicine was born, and it was... Uh, uh, brought to life by a German physician named Samuel Hahnemann. And in the 1800s, uh, medicine, uh, as it was practiced in the world, was pretty horrific. I mean, that was back in the day when they were bleeding people, when they were giving people large doses of mercury. And, uh, you know, it was heroic medicine. It was kind of the rise of heroic medicine. And the treatment were often worse than the illness was. And there were a group of physicians who recognized that the use of all of these nasty drugs and very caustic pharmaceutical agents were killing people. And, you know, the cure was worse than the disease. And yet something had to be done. Something had to be done to end human suffering. So Dr. Hahnemann in Germany started experimenting with making the medicines weaker and weaker, making them more and more dilute. And what he found paradoxically was, as he made the medicines more and more dilute, they had better and better action when they were applied correctly. It was really fascinating. It is know, fascinating. The, the whole uh, kind of uh, uh, rec recognizing that the law of similars, number one, existed. You know, Nobody knew that before Hahnemann came along. So not only did he discover the law of similars, but he also discovered this law of serial dilution, serial dynamization or potentization, as it's called with homeopathy. I, uh, you know, Hahnemann was kind of like the Einstein of, of medicine back in the day. Very, very exciting. Now, there's 2,500 licensed naturopaths in the USA, at least as of the publication of your book. Yeah, there's 4,000 now, the 4,000, 4,000 right now. This is 2011. And next year, in 2012, it's going to be about, now between 3,500 and 4,000 licensed naturopathic doctors in the entire country. You know, that's a drop in the bucket. That's not much. No, it's not much. I mean, it's 300 million people, right? We are an eeny, weeny, teeny profession. However, you know, we're like the people that just invented the wheel. I mean, can you imagine, or I think perhaps a better metaphor is the homie the Naturopathic doctors of today are like the abolitionists in, you know, the antebellum South. Back in the day, after 300 years of slavery, there were, in fact, a handful of people saying, you know what? Slavery's not right. It's a bad thing. And they started making noise about it, and they were a minority, but they had the truth. And because they had the truth, their movement started to grow. Now, look, you know, it took a couple of hundred years for that whole thing to really grasp a hold, and for goodness sake, you know, the Civil War, it resulted in the Civil War, and now, you know, slavery has been abolished. Well, 
naturopathic physicians are in a similar position right now because our message is as radical right now as the whole notion of slavery is a bad thing was back in the days of slavery. Have you heard of this host on television? I think her name is Juliana Rancic. She has been an e-commentator. She and her husband, Bill, have had their own show. And she just went through a double mastectomy a few days ago. Yeah. And one of the things I found yesterday was that she had implants put in her breasts. Yeah. Now, I know we're not talking about this necessarily, but people don't correlate putting these type of materials in your body to the effect of causation or facilitating an outbreak of cancer. But I just find it interesting that they're all talking about the double mastectomy and she had to do it to save her life. And God knows what else she's been through, chemo or whatever else she may have to go through still and cutting out her lymph nodes. And I just think it's very ripe to talk about something else in your book that really upset me. I want to kind of cut to this for just a moment, just because she just got her double mastectomy. Yeah. On page 117. You write that when an oncologist prescribes a chemotherapy drug, he or she gets a piece of the action, and chemotherapy is the only category of prescription drugs where this is allowed. I can't believe it. Well, you better believe it because medicine since, mm, I don't know, more or less 60 or 70 years ago has turned into a for-profit juggernaut here in the United States. Well, I see that part, but what you wrote, how do you know that that's true? Well, I'll, I'll tell you how I know that that's true. I'll look up the reference for that right now. Uh, there was a study that was published a number of years ago. I'm going to try to pull up the reference right now. Thank you. It's a 12-year study. They looked at adults who had developed cancer. Over the course of 12 years, this was a gigantic study, and this was published in the Journal of... Clinical uh, Oncology? Clinical Oncology, published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, and I'll find the date here in a second. And the 12-year study published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, and in the world of clinical oncology, it doesn't get any better than that. That's the gold standard, right? And here were the results of the study. They conclusively proved that adults who developed cancer and were treated with chemotherapy, chemotherapy was 97% ineffective. It didn't work. It did not work. 97% of the time. And I think the study was published in 1994. 97% of the time, chemotherapy doesn't work. And yet it's still prescribed. And chemotherapy clinics are popping up all over the place. Well, how can this be? It's because chemotherapeutic drugs are the only classification of drugs that the doctor gets a piece of the action. So, you know, the hospital buys the drug for cisplatin for $3,000. They sell it for $12,000. Insurance pays $9,000. And the hospital and the doctors split the difference. And it is the only reason that chemotherapy is still prescribed. Listen, if Ford Motor Company invented an automobile which blew up 97% of the time that you drove it off the lot, it wouldn't be around much longer, would it? No, because Ford does not monopolize the automotive industry. But the MDs do. The pharmaceutical companies do. We do not have a free medical market. So they can do whatever the heck they want, and we have lost the war on cancer. A hundred years ago, cancer was the number two killer. 
50 years ago, when Richard Nixon started the war on cancer, it was the number two killer. After a trillion dollars of research and development, it's still the number two killer. And we've had such poor outcomes with cancer. The American Cancer Society about five years ago had to move the goalposts just to save face. So now, if you're a cancer victim and you survive for five years past the date of initial diagnosis, if you die on day one plus five years, that therapy that you were given to cancer is considered successful. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, and what's even more unbelievable is selenium, for instance. Selenium, which is a mineral supplement, you know, like calcium and magnesium, cheaper than dirt because it's made from dirt, for goodness sake. That's where it comes from. 200 micrograms of selenium supplementation reduced the occurrence of breast cancer. By 82%. Right. 82%. Yeah. And my colleague, Dr. Wallach, had to sue the FDA in order to be able to say that legally without being thrown in jail. And I want you to ask yourself a question, right? And, and all of this is based on, you know, research, published research. How many women who are listening to this broadcast got a phone call from your doctor, said, Mary, you're not going to believe it. I just read in the journal of the American Medical Association that selenium has remarkable anti-cancer effects. I know there's a history of breast cancer in your family. I want you to go to the health food store tonight. If they're not open, I want you to throw a brick through the window. I want you to go inside and get some selenium and start taking it. Because if you do, it pretty much looks like you're going to reduce your chances of getting breast cancer by 82%. Now, how many women got that phone call? Zero. Why did we have to sue the FDA in order to be able to say this publicly without fear of being thrown in jail because medicine is a monopoly in the United States and it's all pharmacy all the time, all surgery all the time. We have lost the war on cancer, but nobody is saying this. The only people that are saying this, Suzanne Summers, get vilified in the popular press and you know we are upside down, inside out and completely backwards here when it comes to medicine and cancer is a perfect example. You know, it's interesting. You also said that selenium also can reduce prostate cancer by 69%, colorectal cancer by 64%, and lung cancer even for smokers by 39%. That's pretty good. Yeah, and that's just one. Right, that's just one mineral, right? Yeah, there's 60 essential minerals. Selenium is just one of them. The bigger question is, why aren't we putting research, cancer research, into vitamins and minerals? Because you cannot patent a vitamin and mineral because they're naturally occurring substances. Now, you can't go to uh, uh, Washington, D.C. and patent orange juice or oxygen or calcium. Leave it to Monsanto. They're patenting pigs. They're patenting the molecular structure of seeds. They're trying to patent all animals. Well, they're doing it by genetically modifying them. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so, uh, so you know, I suppose probably you could say that there's a workaround for it. Uh, I found a reference for the uh, chemotherapy. It's the Journal of Clinical Oncology, Volume 16, Issue 8, December 2004. That's the Journal of Clinical Oncology, Volume 16, Issue 8, December 2004, folks. That's seven years ago. And, you know, from that day to today, more chemotherapy has been prescribed than ever 
even though it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And in my book, by the way, I have nine or ten maybe questions that every cancer patient should ask their oncologist. Every cancer patient should ask your oncologist these ten questions. And what I have had a handful of patients do that, and they've been kicked out of their oncologist's office. The oncologist got up and stormed away and refused to talk to him because these questions cut to the bone. Doctor, how much will you profit from this therapy? Doctor, what percentage of patients that have this type of cancer at my age have actually been cured from it? Doctor, what specific side effects can I expect from this treatment? Doctor, what are my chances of a cure from this type of cancer with your therapy? Doctor, I understand that your hospital is a for-profit industry. How much will this hospital profit from my cancer treatment? I've actually heard that hospitals make hundreds and thousands of dollars from cancer treatments. They do. That's why they exist. And Cancer Treatment Centers of America, in my opinion, is the worst offender. The worst offender. Because they pitch themselves as being holistic and using naturopathic physicians. And, you know, they do. They're the only cancer treatment centers in the world that employ naturopathic physicians, but they don't use holistic therapy to treat cancer. They use holistic therapeutics to clean up the mess that the chemo and the radiation and the surgery created so that the patient can get a couple of more rounds of chemo, radiation, and surgery so the hospital can make more money. They don't have outcomes. Nobody has outcomes. We've lost the war on cancer. We need to snap out of it and collectively all wake up. And it's extremely frustrating, and it all goes back to one reason. Medical doctors have drunk their own Kool-Aid. They actually, the, the education of a medical doctor, an MD, an allopathic MD, is such a meat grinder in this country that medical doctors come out of their education actually believing that if they weren't taught it in medical school, it's just not valid. So since they don't know how to cure cancer, nobody can. So therefore, their point of view when they're talking to a cancer patient is, look, this is all we got. This is all we got. You know, you have like a 2% chance of pulling through this or adding another five years to your life. So you might as well just shut up and do it because you're not going to go to those back of the bus, naturopathic, homeopathic, you know, chiropractic quacks because they're just going to kill you. And even though exactly the opposite is true, according to the Journal of the American Medical Association. The Journal of the American Medical Association, the third leading cause of death in the United States is your MD, the third leading cause of death. And yet we line up for their treatment. We can't wait for their treatment. And every time the government makes noise about messing with your health care, everybody goes into a dither. And I want you to think about this. When you buy insurance, what are you doing? You are betting that you're going to get so sick you won't be able to afford it. That's what health insurance is. That is what it is. That is what it is. And, and you're, you're buying access to a system of medicine that's the third leading cause of death in the United States. What do you think about the fact that we are potentially about to be forced to pay for pharmaceutical grade medical insurance vis-a-vis -vis the government? I think it's ridiculous. And, you know, I, I don't think it'll fly. I don't think. And if it does, you know, talk about a monopoly. Right. I mean, this is how much of the Kool-Aid these people have drunken. They actually believe 
that they are the gods of medicine and that they know everything there is to know about medicine. And everybody has to just shut up and do what they say to do, even though doing what they say to do kills you and doesn't work. Look, you know, we talked about cancer, but let's talk about heart disease. A hundred years ago, heart disease was the number one killer. 50 years ago, it was the number one killer. Now, after 45 years of statin drugs, cholesterol-lowering drugs, fat-free diets and exercise, heart disease is still the number one killer. Obesity is on the rise. High blood pressure is on the rise. Life expectancy is falling, plummeting. Autism is on the rise. Fibromyalgia is on the rise. Chronic illness is on the rise while we have let the MDs drive the bus of medicine. They have driven it over the cliff into a ditch at the bottom of a swamp, and we don't know any better because we have suffered from a 100 years of public relations nonsense telling us that, oh, the MD, Marcus Welby, and the guy from MASH, and the, guy from, the guys from Grey's Anatomy, and oh, George Clooney, isn't he so good looking, and all of this nonsense. We actually believe that the MD is the undisputed king of medicine, and that false notion is killing us. I have to share something with you. Last month, I interviewed Dr. Nick Gonzalez out of New York for the second time about the death of Steve Jobs. And one of the things that he shared that didn't get to the public is that Steve Jobs had two critical medical procedures that are really responsible for his early death. One, he had a liver transplant he didn't need. And two, they gave him a certain type of drug. Once you have a transplant, you have to take these drugs because your body doesn't accept the new organ. Right. So what happens is what they gave him as a drug is a cancer-causing drug. <laughs> he also had a WIPA procedure, which practically kills most of the people they do it with. Right. So a lot of this never got to the public. The devil's always in the details. Yet on the news, they laugh and chide about the fact that he once was following holistic type of eating or he was trying to eat well and take supplements and herbs. And Nick and I were talking about the medical priesthood. Like, how do they know that didn't actually elongate his life? What makes them think that what they do was causal for the benefit and what he did was not causal for the benefit? It's very interesting how the whole thing is slanted. Because they've drunk their own Kool-Aid and because, you know, I mean, open up a USA Today, open up, you know, uh, your local newspaper and look to see how many ads for pharmaceutical medicines are in there. It is gigantic money the pharmaceutical industry gives to media in the United States. So do you actually think that anybody who, who owns a newspaper or a magazine or a TV show, you know, mainstream, is going to put any negative PR at all about pharmaceutical companies? You think they're going to bite the hand that feeds them? No, of course not. And because we don't really have a free press here anymore, because everybody's in bed together, and because the pharmaceutical industry is such gigantic amounts of money and PR, we have all gone down the rabbit hole, collectively together. It is a gigantic problem of biblical proportions. We would not accept this type of lousy outcomes in any other industry. But when the MDs do it, they get a pass. When the MDs kill us, we give them a pass. Listen, according to the United States Department of Health and Human Services, this is the United States Department of Health and Human Services, 15,000 
Medicare patients a month are killed by MD treatments. 15,000 Medicare patients a month are killed. 3,000 people are killed in the Twin Towers and we go to war. But 15,000 a month are killed by your neighborhood MD and we don't bat a freaking eyelash. It's because we don't know any better and we're suffering from the misconception of a hundred years of brainwashing that the MD is the undisputed king of medicine and everybody else is a back of the bus quack. And even though the treatments offered by our MDs don't work, even though the treatments offered by our MDs can at best only manage our health, we go to them like lemmings following each other over the cliff to our collective doom. All right, now cut to the nutrients. That's the exciting part. It is. That's the hopeful part. The other part is so depressing and such a bummer (laughs) and so horrendous. On page 94, you said, in the world of nutritional supplements, the recipe is everything. Let's talk about calcium and explain what you mean there. Okay. So, you know, my colleague, Dr. Wallach, was in charge of a $25 million federally funded research from 1970 to 1982. They did 25,000 autopsies, 10 million blood chemistries and slide cultures with special stains. It was a gigantic amount of in-your-face clinical work. And all of that research proved that the majority of chronic illness are caused by nutrient deficiencies. Nutrient deficiencies. You know, not enough calcium, you get high blood pressure. Not enough vitamin C, you get scurvy. Everybody knows that. Not enough selenium, you get fibromyalgia. There are 278 diseases caused by not enough calcium. But because medical doctors have no training in medical nutrition, no respect for medical nutrition, no experience with medical nutrition, and all they know is drugs and surgery, it is impossible for your medical doctor to help you overcome a chronic illness because the majority of chronic illnesses are simple nutrient deficiency diseases. They are simple nutrient deficiencies. However, last year in the United States, we spent approximately $70 billion, with a B, dollars on vitamins and herbs and nutritional supplements, and everybody is still sick. Well, how can these two things be both the same? If Dr. Glidden, you're saying all chronic diseases caused by nutrient deficiencies, and yet we're taking vitamins and minerals up to yin-yang, there should be no more sickness in the United States. Why is everybody still sick? Because of the recipe. You know, all wine is made from grapes, but uh, Annie Boonspring's green apple wine is quite a bit different from a nice French Cabernet, right? My grandmother's chicken soup was a lot better than the chicken soup in the can at the supermarket. Oh, what's the difference? The recipe's the difference. So let's take a look at calcium, all right? So the RDA for calcium is 1,200 milligrams a day. Now, we could have a whole show about the recommended daily allowances. It's a farce. That's what I do know. It's a farce. It's always been a farce. It's been at least three times off, correct? That's correct, right? But, you know, we do need a certain amount of calcium. So let's just say that we can collectively agree, just for argument's sake, that we need 1,200 milligrams of calcium a day. Okay. So you go to the health food store and there's 100 calcium supplements to choose from. They have more calcium, different types of calcium than anything else at a normal health food store. Which, by the way, is extremely confusing for the consumer. 
And it should be, and it is. I mean, it's a confusing for holistic medical doctors. <laughs> the information that I'm about to tell you, I think 50 of my colleagues know, maybe, maybe 50 of us, all right? It's a confusing situation, but it doesn't need to be. And this is one of the reasons why I wrote the book. And my colleague, Dr. Wallach, and I give, you know, we give about three collectively, three, four hundred free lectures a year, free, all around the country, and radio interviews all the time to bring this information into, you know, we got to drag people into the light of medical nutrition. Okay, so here we go with calcium. So, you know, this bottle over here is $10 a bottle, and the one at the other end is $110 a bottle. So most people are going to get the one in the middle. And, you know, the clerk at the health food store, they don't know the difference. They're happy to sell you the one for $110. So you get the one for $35. And it says right there on the label in big letters, calcium carbonate, 500 milligrams per capsule. Well, you think, son of a gun, the RDA is 1,200, so if I take three, that's 1,500, I'm going to get a little extra, that'll be insurance, that's what I'm going to do. And there's 60 capsules in the bottle, hallelujah, and pass the hat, life is good. Well, not so much, because in one 500 milligram capsule of calcium carbonate, there is approximately 200 milligrams of calcium and 300 milligrams of carbonate. Well, 200... That's not 500, but, you know, so now I just need to take six, right? Well, no, because it's your stomach's job to cleave that molecule in the, with the stomach acid and liberate the calcium from the carbonate. But in order to do that, your stomach acid has to be strong. Guess what your stomach needs to have strong stomach acid? Calcium. So if you're calcium deficient, you're going to have weak stomach acid and your stomach is not going to be able to sever that bond and liberate the calcium. Fascinating. But, Fascinating. But let's, just, let's just say for argument's sake that it can. Okay. So your stomach liberates that bond and now you've got 200 milligrams of calcium floating through your blood. Only problem is calcium from calcium carbonate is approximately 15% bioavailable. 15%. Oh my God. 15% of 200 is 30 milligrams, which means in order to meet the RDA with one 500 milligram capsule of calcium carbonate, you would need to swallow 40 a day, four zero a day. <laughs> it's really the devil in the details. The plot thickens here. This is how <laughs> Sally Field can go on TV and, you know, legally say that, oh, I got osteoporosis even though I took my calcium. Yeah, well, you stupid twit, you only took three. You should have taken 40. Now, that's like me going on TV and saying, oh, I tried to put that fire in my backyard out and I used water, but it didn't work. Wait, I want to go back and I want to reframe because I love the flying nun. I'm <laughs> sure she's pretty smart and probably she relied on a traditional doctor, which didn't tell her what you're now describing either because he didn't know or because he didn't care or because he withheld the information. That's correct. And by the way, this is, you know, this is first year biochemistry. This is not rocket science. Okay. Okay. But, but anyway, you need 1200 milligrams. I'm certainly not advocating that anybody take 40 calcium capsules a day. For goodness sake, there's only 60 in the bottle, right? It, you know, you need a bottle every other day. It's crazy. What, you just had the wrong recipe is my point. If you get a calcium supplement that's 97% bioavailable, 
and that has 1,200 milligrams in each serving, and you know, 97% of 1,200, well, that's pretty good. And if it has the cofactors and vitamin D and phosphorus and other uh, nutrients that your body needs in order to metabolize the calcium properly, then you metabolize the calcium properly. And it's game, set, match. It is a completely different metabolic experience. It is a completely different personal experience. Well, I like that you say game, set, and match because I have a 13-year background as a tournament tennis player, so it definitely rings for me. I did not know that. Yeah. I think what you're saying is that this is a whole systems kind of nutrient package that you're giving. What else is in the calcium supplement that you've had to design or the company that you work with has designed? Well, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, and this is, again, the one of the, the fundamental tenets of holistic medicine, which is overlooked even by many holistic physicians, all right? The fundamental difference between a holistic viewpoint of health and an allopathic reductionistic MD viewpoint of life MDs practice reductionistic medicine. I practice holistic medicine. Reductionists believe that once you're sick, you're screwed, and that you have to march in and deliver synthetic drugs which overpower and control the innate workings of the human body. Also, one thing I want to cut in here. You also, on page 112 in your book, you talk about integrated medicine as a very misleading concept, and I want you to explain that to us. Because a lot of people think that they're doing advanced whole systems medicine by going to an integrated medical doctor and that this is like a hidden packaging term. Talk about it. Well, you know, that the tiger never changes his stripes, right? So here's what happens. MDs are trained in the reductionistic method. And the reductionistic method argues that the human body is like a machine and you have to take it apart and give a different medicine for each piece that's broken. And the medicines that are delivered are delivered to overpower and control the natural workings of the human body because from the reductionistic point of view, the soul doesn't exist. Nobody's ever dissected the soul out of a corpse or measured the soul with an MRI or a CT scan. And the human body does not have the ability to fix itself. So once it's sick, you have to march in and control override and control the workings of the human body with synthetic pharmaceutical drugs. And each piece gets its own medicine, right? So one medicine to your arthritis, one medicine to your high blood pressure, one medicine to your insomnia, one medicine to your heartburn, one medicine to your depression, the fake hip, the fake knee, so forth and so on, till death do us part. And for most of us, death does us part in our late 70s or early 80s, right? This is the reductionistic method. Now, MD, there are a handful of MDs who are, you know, good people and observant people, and they understand through personal experience that their way doesn't work. And, you know, let's give the devil his due. What reductionistic medicine excels at is trauma and surgery and infectious disease. Surgery when it's necessary. Most of the time it's not. You know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But these guys are really good at trauma here. They're really good at surgery when it's necessary, and they're really good at, you know, things like bronchitis and pneumonia and things like that. But but for everything else, they stink, all right? So you've got reductionistic MD 
who's been treating in a general family practice and he sees his stuff doesn't work. But he and he knows, you know, he's dedicated his life to medicine. So he, he wants to help people. So what's he going to do? Well, he's going to take courses in something called integrative medicine. And there's a couple of, you know, uh, businesses around the world that train MDs in the use of vitamins and herbs, uh, you know, once they've already been in clinical practice. However, you cannot change somebody's innate philosophy. You know, a Buddhist is always going to be a Buddhist. A born-again Christian is always going to be a born-again Christian. A Republican is always going to be a Republican, and a Democrat is always going to be a Democrat. Maybe for the most part. For the most part. <laughs> for the okay. most part. I'm going to put a caveat in there. For the most Ed part. Schultz. Ed Schultz changed, right? right? <laughs> God bless him, okay? Yeah, every once in a while it'll happen. But by and large, the tiger's not going to change his stripes. So when MDs start to use vitamins and herbs, they use them the same way they use drugs. And this leads to something called fractionated nutrition. You know, like Linus Pauling was a perfect example. He gave, you know, thousands of milligrams of vitamin C, mega doses of vitamin C, or mega doses of vitamin D like David, or, you know, golden seal instead of uh, the antibiotic, right? Or whatever. They just substitute. So instead of using the, the pharmaceutical drug, they'll use a vitamin or a mineral. But they never use it holistically. They always continue to use it reductionistically and their treatments fail. That's a great point you just made. That is really a powerful point about the application of. And it's the application is everything, you know. It, it, so it's kind of like an MD that practices integrative medicine is like Taco Bell. You know, it's Americanized Mexican food, and we want to compare that to, you know, a, a thousand-year-old restaurant in Mexico City that really gives real, authentic Mexican food. There is a gigantic difference between the two. It's a gigantic difference. I mean, it's laughable that they're, they're even called the same thing. Well, it's exactly the same. Look, if you need surgery, if you have a nasty infection, if you've you know been in an automobile accident, go straight to the MDs because they're really good at that. But if you're frustrated with conventional medical treatment for a chronic illness, going to an integrative medical doctor is just going to be an expensive, ridiculous proposition for you. You need to go to a holistic physician, someone who's been trained in it from the get-go because our philosophy is different. And the philosophy of holistic medicine is so simple and straightforward that it's breathtakingly, fantastically simple. And here it is in a nutshell, folks. Your body was smart enough to grow itself all by itself from a single-celled organism. Therefore, it has the ability to fix itself also. If your body could grow itself all by itself into the magnificent manifestation of you, Guess what? It can fix itself also. And all that your body needs in order to fix itself is the raw materials that it needs to fix itself. Give it the raw materials and it fixes itself. Hallelujah. <laughs> I want to bring you back just a moment to a couple of tidbits. First of all, before we go to those tidbits, I think the basic paradigm here is that as a naturopathic physician, you come from a paradigm that the body is extremely intelligent and able. Correct. 
and the paradigms are really different in the traditional medical world today. That's and correct. so it's a whole different gestalt. But let's talk about a tidbit that you had in the book that blew my mind. You said that a lot of the people that turn gray early have a copper deficiency. Share about that. All right. Well, here we go. We're getting into medical nutrition now. Your body, in order to make pigment, right, to keep your skin its proper color and to keep your hair its proper color, whether you're a natural blonde, a natural brunette, natural redhead, or whatever, it needs two things. It needs the amino acid tyrosine and it needs the mineral copper. If you run out of either one of those, and it's much easier to run out of copper than it is to run out of tyrosine, your body loses its ability to make pigment. And because hair is a non-essential tissue and skin is a pretty essential tissue, your body pulls nutrients from the hair before it starts messing with the skin. And so when your hair goes gray or white, it's not because of genetics. It's not because you're getting older. It's because you've run out of copper and tyrosine. Does that mean if people yeah. are able to balance, they can get their hair back? Yeah, they put it back and your hair comes back. I mean, you should have seen a picture of me three years ago. You wouldn't recognize me. My hair was a lot grayer than it is now. Um, I've probably recovered 50% of my hair color in three years. I've seen people who were white and a year and a half later, their hair was flaming red again. Just like Wow. That's fascinating. Are you listening, everybody? <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the stuff, right? You don't know what you don't know. And this is, again, this is a perfect thing to talk about in this regard because we're like a ship of fools here in the United States, right? Because nobody knows this. Nobody knows about medical nutrition. And everybody goes to MDs. And everybody uses drugs. And because everybody is using drugs and because everybody is going to MDs, everybody's health fails. Everybody's overweight. Everybody has white hair. Everybody's joints fail. Everybody needs a hip replacement. Everybody needs a knee replacement. Everybody gets type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure. We just expect that it's going to happen to us too, and rightly so, because you know what? It's happening to everybody. But the only reason it's happening to everybody is because everybody has bet on the wrong horse. Everybody's gone to an MD. They didn't even know there was another horse in the race, for goodness sake. And we've gotten used to getting sick. That's why the subtitle of my book was Everybody is Sick, and I know why. You know, but the average Joe on the street does not have this perspective. And, you know, they'll go to their medical doctor or read in Reader's Digest about how dangerous vitamins are. And it's nonsense. It is, we have, it's like we're all in Alice in Wonderland down the rabbit hole, baby. It's upside down, inside out, and completely backwards. Drugs cannot fix a nutrient deficiency disease, period. And most chronic disease is caused by not enough nutrition. You don't have a bad gene. You haven't been cursed by God, and it's not because you're getting older. It's simply because your body has run out of the raw materials it needs to keep itself healthy. It is that simple. I want to now cut to this conversation that you and I had last week briefly. You gave an example of a horse. We'll use that again. And you talked about a phenomenon that sometimes horses have when they'll eat everything in sight and they can't get enough nutrition. And you were correlating it to why people are fat and obese. Do you remember that? I remember it. This is the. You've got to share what you shared with me. That was so interesting. 
Okay, this is the weight loss secret that not even Oprah knows. <laughs> there you go. Okay, and I'm serious as a heart attack. Obesity is a giant problem here, no pun intended. Over 300,000 people in this country die every year from illnesses related to obesity. 30% of our kids are obese. One-third of the adult population is obese. Obesity is rapidly becoming the biggest health care concern in this country. And if it keeps going this way, it's going to be bad. And this is happening because of your MD. Obesity is your MD's fault. It's not your fault. It's your MD's fault. Why? Why are you saying it's the MD's fault with respect to this? Because we go to MDs for health care. We pay good money out of our pockets, hard-earned money every month to gain access to their type of medicine. We've put them up on this pedestal where they love to be, and we trust that their therapeutics are going to help us. But they've completely let us down. And while they've been driving the bus of medicine for the last hundred years in the United States, obesity has skyrocketed. It has skyrocketed because they do not know how to fix it. And we do. Okay. Bring that example about the horse. So obesity is a deficiency disease. It is not a disease of excess. It is a deficiency disease, period. And there's a phenomenon in horses called pica. It's also called cribbing. It's an uncontrollable need to eat in a horse. It also happens in cows. It can happen in sheep and pigs. But most of the time, it's horses or cattle. It's an uncontrollable need to eat in the animal. When an animal has pica or cribbing, a horse, for instance, it'll eat poop. It'll eat stones. It'll eat dirt. It'll eat the wood on its fence. It'll eat anything that it can, and it cannot stop doing it. Now. Did the horse have alcoholic parents? No. Did the horse have an inferiority complex? No. Did the horse need gastric bypass surgery? No. Did the horse have a weak will? No. The horse was not overeating because of a bad gene either. The horse was overeating because it was egregiously low in nutrition, and its central nervous system knew it. You know, if you could visualize 100% optimal nutrition as an orange juice bottle filled to the brim with orange juice, and that's optimal nutrition, the average American has less than one-third of that bottle filled. Less than one-third of our nutritional tanks is are filled. And in this case, with the horse, you know, it's like a tenth of the way filled. And when your nutritional bottle starts running on fumes, so to speak, your central nervous system knows it. And it makes the animal eat in the desperate attempt to fill that tank up. The only problem is the food that the horse is eating doesn't have the nutrients in it that's necessary to fill the tank up, and neither is the food that we're eating. So that a typical person who's 100 pounds overweight will tell you you know, they went to Olive Garden or some place, had 2,500 calories, and two hours later, they're hungry again. And they're not hungry again because they have a weak will. They're not hungry again because of a psychological condition. They're not hungry because they have a bad gene, and they're not hungry because they need their stomach cut out, which is what their MD will tell you. They're hungry because their nutritional tank is empty. And so the fix for this is simple. 
when you consume the proper recipes of vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, essential nutrients, when you fill your tank up every day with bioavailable nutrients, your cravings disappear. So you go to Olive Garden, there's 2,500 calories on the plate, you eat 500, you're full, you take the rest home in a doggy bag, you don't get hungry between meals, and you don't eat calories. The only thing that makes people gain weight is too many calories. There was nobody in Auschwitz that was overweight. I don't care what their medical diagnosis was. If you don't eat calories, you lose weight. The only thing that makes people eat too many calories is chronic undiagnosed, unrecognized nutrient deficiencies, period. When you fill the tank up, your cravings go away. It's really easy for you to eat, you know, 1,500 calories a day, and you'll lose weight like nobody's business. What do people do to make sure on a nutrient level that they are filling their tanks up? What is the recommended action you have for us? Well, that's easy. I mean, we made it easy. And this is, again, one of the gifts to humanity that Dr. Wallach has brought to the table. And I could talk for an hour about, you know, the social imperative that Dr. Wallach, his social agenda. It's unbelievable the stuff that this guy has done. He sued the FDA eight times, a million dollars each time. So we can give information to you that's going to save your life without being thrown in jail, right? I could go on and on. But one of the things that he did the result of all that research that he was involved with, 25 million bucks of federally funded research, 26,000 autopsies, that's a lot of clinical work. His research eliminated 900 diseases in the animal kingdom. Eliminated it. 900 diseases in the animal kingdom. Eliminated them. They're gone. And when he became a naturopathic physician, he started applying with human patients the therapeutics that they used in the animal kingdom and got the same result. And it's because of Wallach's breadth of experience with actual illness, actual people with actual successful treatment outcomes, that he was able to develop and formulate recipes which provide the body with everything that the body needs. Now, before I met Dr. Wallach, what I used to do, if you wanted to be a patient of mine, we'd have to do $250 worth of blood work. I would analyze the blood work along nutritional lines, and then I would fine-tune for you a nutritional program based on your blood work, kind of filling in the blanks, giving you what you needed and not giving you what you had plenty of, right? That's a smart thing to do, but it was expensive. And every three months, we have to do more blood work and kind of fine-tune the program, and it's expensive. It was effective, but it was expensive. But now Dr. Wallach comes along and says, you know what? The human body is smart enough to fix itself. So all that you have to do is give it all of the essential nutrients that it needs every day. And get the hell out of the way and the body will fix itself. And you know how many people died last year from a vitamin overdose? Zero. It is virtually impossible to hurt yourself or to take too much of a vitamin. You can do it. I mean, too much water will kill you. Too much sunlight will kill you. I think the only thing that too much of won't hurt you is love, right? But too much of anything will kill you. It's virtually impossible to do that with nutrients. So Dr. Wallach devised something called the Healthy Start Pack. It's three nutritional supplements. 
two liquids and one essential fatty acid in a gel cap. Those three supplements combined together provide you with all 91 essential nutrients that your body needs in extremely bioavailable, concentrated, and effective recipes. And I, as God is my witness, since, since I've been working with Wallach and following his therapeutic lead and you know leaning on his research and his clinical experience, the things I've seen people recover from are I don't even know what planet I'm on anymore. I, you wouldn't believe the things that I've seen people recover from just with good old-fashioned medical nutrition. Actually, it's good new-fashioned medical nutrition. It's very exciting. In fact, uh, Ashley, who got in contact with me, is a living testimonial for the work that you and Dr. Wallace are doing. She was suffering from chronic fatigue for 15 years. She'd been to every doctor in the country, done all these therapeutics, tried everything to lose weight, couldn't do it or could do it, but she felt like crap when she was losing weight. Because remember, and here's another little twist of irony, right? Every weight loss clinic in the world will tell you that one of the keys to weight loss is exercise. And they're all wrong. And this is why they all fail. Or this is why you'll lose 30 pounds, but then you can't handle it anymore. So you'll cave, you'll discard the therapeutic and you gain 40. Because remember, our whole supposition is that the only reason you're craving too many calories is because you're running on nutrient fumes. Now, when you exercise, what happens to your nutrient reserves? You waste them faster. You're already running on empty, and so now you exercise, and you sap your reserves that much faster. So the more you exercise, the more you crave to eat, and you really have to bring your willpower to bear and while you're doing it, you feel awful because your body knows that it's nutrient starved and it is trying to get you to eat. And it's crazy. We have it completely backwards here. And you know what's the most frustrating thing for me? The most frustrating thing is, is these MDs, I just don't get where they're coming from. Because, you know, if I was a medical doctor and I was looking around, at the outrageous treatment failures, and I mean outrageous, they are outrageous treatment failures. I would have a little introspection and say, you know what? Maybe we need to change our methodology. Maybe our fundamental philosophy is incorrect. Maybe we need to start to do things a little differently. I want to stop you just a moment here, and I want to go back to the exercise part, because you just dropped the equivalent of a bomb on the audience. And I don't want to take it lightly, and I don't want this to be an opportunity to gloss over something that's a fact for you but isn't a fact for us. My current frame of reference is that, well, now it's really changed with Phil Campbell's studies, but my understanding is that particularly for anybody over 50, you need weight-bearing exercise. Otherwise, you're going to lose your muscle mass and your bones are not going to be strong and you're not strengthening your core. And it used to be you were told if you walk 45 minutes, five to six days a week, it'll keep you lean. So if all of this were correct, and you're right, so but let's put it in perspective. We've, we've had all of this advice for the last 50 years about how to be healthy, about how to eat healthily, about how to exercise healthily, and about how to maintain our health. And in that time frame that we've had all of this advice, obesity is skyrocketing. High blood pressure is skyrocketing. Heart disease has remained unchanged. Cancer incidence has remained unchanged. The information that we've gotten hasn't worked. It's been completely ineffective. 
and yet we do not recognize it. There's never been a professional athlete to live to be over 100. Well, there was one guy from the old, you know, black baseball leagues in the 1920s. He made it to be over 100. Do you exercise? Rarely. No, I just do a little bit of yoga. I'm, a, I'm kind of a yoga guy. I was a yoga instructor years ago before it was a thing to do. I taught myself how to do yoga when I was 13 years old. I became a yoga instructor in 1980. Interesting. Do you do breathing? Obviously, you're very attuned to doing special types of breathing and oxygenating your system. Do you advocate breathing exercises and high-level oxygenation for the public? No. Here's what we advocate, all right? Take the 91 essential nutrients every day, appropriate for your body weight, and stop eating. There are nine foods that nobody should eat, let alone look at. And to, to kind of underline this exercise thing, and we can talk about it more, Listen up, folks. Again, this is not rocket science. Exercise without nutrition is suicide. Exercise without nutrition is suicide. And by nutrition, I don't mean eat from the four food groups. You know, I don't mean, you know, have a, have a, a, a palm-sized meal five times a day. I don't mean reduce your carbohydrates and increase your protein. I mean there are 91 essential nutrients vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and essential fatty acids that your body needs to have imported into it every day, every day. If you do not import those nutrients into your body every day, it is only a matter of time before you run out of one or more of them and something breaks. Now, if, you know, if you have, if your tank is half filled with nutrients and you exercise, you increase your metabolic rate, you sweat, you accelerate your nutrient loss. And unless you fill that tank back up, things are gonna break faster. You know, it's really, again, from the proper perspective, everything makes sense. If I had two brand new automobiles, exactly the same year, make, and model, and they both need eight quarts of oil, but they both only have two quarts of oil, they're both six quarts down, if I drive one of those cars at 10 miles an hour and the other car at 100 miles an hour, wh which car is the engine going to seize first? The one that's going 100 miles an hour. 100. It's the same with the human body. If you, when you exercise, you dramatically increase your body's nutrient needs, dramatically. Harvard University did a study. There was a, there was a basketball player in Boston. Um, what was his name? Peyton. Um, oh, uh, yeah. It, it'll come to me in a minute, right? I know who you're talking about. I can't remember the name either, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah, he died of a heart attack, and, you know, a very young age. and Yeah, he had a heart attack at a very young age, and nobody could figure out why because he was an athlete, professional athlete, right? He, he didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. You know, he was good, and he working out, like the doctors say, you know, watching what he eats. He had a good body weight index, you know, everything good. Reggie Lewis? Reggie Lewis. That's who it was. It was Reggie Lewis, okay? And he had a heart attack, and then the doctors at Harvard are trying to figure out what to do to help him, and then he dies, right? Died of a second heart attack. And it was so perplexing to the medical community. How the heck could this happen? Harvard University did a study, and they showed that when you exercise, you increase your risk of a heart attack by 600%. <laughs> When you exercise, you increase your risk of a heart attack by 600%. Now, wait a minute. You don't necessarily mean just traditional walking. 
When you say exercise, you mean something different than just me going out for a half hour and just walking. Look, it depends on your nutrient status. If Here's what I mean. If you have a chronic illness, if you have high blood pressure, arthritis, fibromyalgia, insomnia, heartburn, migraine headaches, whatever it is that you've got that's a chronic illness that you're taking medication for, those chronic illnesses are all caused by nutrient deficiencies. The reason that you have high blood pressure, the reason that you have arthritis, the reason that you have fibromyalgia, the reason that you have type 2 diabetes is because your body has run out of the raw materials that it needs to fix itself. So your tank is low and it's dangerously low. As a matter of fact, it is so low, stuff has already broken. So with people that have a chronic illness and are taking a medication, I don't advise any exercise at all. Zero. Unless you're taking nutritional supplements. Because when you exercise, you're going to suck out your nutrition even more and your blood pressure is going to get worse, your fibromyalgia is going to get worse, whatever it is that's there is going to get worse. It has to. You know, but on another hand, doctor, we are made to move, not necessarily to exercise, but we're designed to move, to circulate blood, to circulate lymph, to move. You're not advocating being sedentary. You're just not advocating going on these exercise programs without supplying your nutritional needs. Well, just like in the first part of this program when we talked about, you know, the the horrors of conventional medicine, it was all doom and gloom. You know, now we need to start, and then we started the second segment with, oh, you know, the wonders of medical nutrition. Well, it's the same with exercise. So the the first side of the coin is exercise without nutrition is suicide. The flip side to that coin is exercise with nutrition, Superman, Superwoman. Uh, you know, when you exercise, you're, you break tissue down. You break muscle fiber down. You know, you stress your heart. You stress your lungs. You stress your circulatory system. And then post, you stress your bones and your joints, right? And then post-exercise, your body, in its wisdom, attempts to strengthen those parts of the body that you just stressed. But what does your body need to strengthen those parts of the body that you just stressed? Nutrients. It needs raw materials. So when you exercise and take good recipes of bioavailable nutrients in adequate amounts every day, guess what? Your joints are healthy. Your heart is healthy. Your bones are healthier than your next door neighbors or even your twin brothers who didn't do that. So you have to do both. If you're going to exercise, you have to supplement appropriately. And by the way, when you do, when you start to supplement appropriately, it's a game changer. Your recovery time is better. Your hand-eye coordination is better. Your endurance is better. Everything gets better. There are very famous professional athletes who, whose name you would r recognize immediately if I were to say it, who won't go on to the court without our stuff, but they make him put it in a Gatorade bottle. Because, you know, the Gatorade has signed multi-million dollar contracts and they give all this free stuff to all of these NBA guys all the time. And this is, again, the, the wonderful thing about medical nutrition. Because, you know, just like years ago when people said slavery is bad, it, not that many people believed them. There are not that many people that believe us. And it's 
I don't know why. I mean, more and more people are starting to come around, not really because they believe us, but because they're frustrated with conventional medicine, and they'll do anything. So when people by default or on purpose come onto our side and take our nutritional supplements and follow our methods, they feel better, just like Ashley James. I mean, they feel better. It proves itself. And, you know, this, and this is why Dr. Wallach's company, um, Longevity, is so successful because it works. I mean, you take the stuff, you feel better. You, you don't take the stuff, you feel worse. It's that simple. And, and this is the beauty of the recipe. You know, this is why some French Bordeaux's are really expensive because they taste awesome. And there's a difference. <laughs> That's right? true. That's true. I'd like you to talk a little bit about heartburn because it's prevalent across the board with the young, the middle-aged, and the older people. Yeah, heartburn is, um, uh, again, the MDs have gotten it completely backwards. And one thing I want to underline about this is we need the proper perspective on everything. Medical doctors are like colorblind art critics. There's, they can see that that's a picture of a tree on the wall, but they are completely blind to the colors and the textures that make up the heart of the piece of art, right? They, just, they can't see it. They're completely blind to it. So medical doctors practicing reductionistic, allopathic, pharmaceutical centrist medicine are completely blind to all of the stuff about nutrition that impacts somebody's health. They cannot see it, right? They can't see it. And heartburn is a perfect example. A medical doctor will tell you that heartburn is caused by too much stomach acid, but they're completely wrong. Heartburn is caused by not enough stomach acid. And here's what happens. When you don't have enough stomach acid, all kinds of funky microorganisms start to grow in your stomach. And when you get funky microorganisms growing in your stomach, your stomach does funny things. One of the things that it does is it squeezes and constricts more rigorously and more often than it does when those things aren't there. And it's that rigorous constriction and funkiness, for want of a more scientific word, that squirts what little digestive juice you have in your stomach up into your throat where there's no protective lining and you got heartburn. The major cause of heartburn is stomach acid that is too weak and the major cause of stomach acid that is too weak is a calcium deficiency but much more importantly strap on your seatbelts folks a salt deficiency heartburn most of the time is a simple deficiency in table salt table salt let me say that one more time table salt start putting salt on your food. There's no relationship between high blood pressure and salt intake, and that was proven in 1958 by a guy from Harvard University. There's no relationship between salt intake and high blood pressure. Salt is an extremely important nutrient for health. Now, I did interview Dr. Brownstein about thyroid and salt and iodine. What kind of salt are you talking about? Morton's iodized table salt. Morton's iodized table salt. The only reason to use Celtic sea salt or Himalayan salt is because those types of salt have extra minerals in them. And extra minerals are good. But the extra minerals in those salts will not supply your body 
with all of the minerals that your body needs. It's a poor recipe. So if you're taking the longevity line of products that provide your body with all 90 essential, 91 essential nutrients that it needs, including all of the minerals that you need in colloidal, bioavailable, organic forms, your mineral needs are completely met. And you don't need to worry about buying expensive mineralized salt to up the ante with your nutrition because you've already handled that with the nutritional supplements, right? So if you're supplementing correctly with bioavailable nutrients, you just need salt, normal table salt. You want to throw a little iodine in it, all the better. I think it's fascinating that you're actually having a correlation between salt intake I know you talked about the calcium, not enough of the right calcium, and that actually our stomach acid is not strong enough. But I also think it's interesting that you're talking about a correlation between not enough salt intake and heartburn, which is fascinating. I have not heard that before. So salt, when you break it down, you know, biochemically is NaCl, it's sodium chloride. Stomach acid is HCl, hydrochloric acid. Your body needs the chlorine molecule, the CL, part of the HCL from table salt. So you need, your body needs the chlorine in order to make strong stomach acid, and the most easiest way to get that is through table salt. And then the chief cells of your stomach, which actually secrete the stomach acid, need calcium in order to do that. So you need the chlorine from table salt to make stomach acid and you need calcium to secrete it bada bing bada boom bada bing and the irony or ironies <laughs> right is if your stomach acid is too weak you are unable to pull the calcium out of food you can't do it and this is a one of the other biggest myths is this ridiculous notion i don't know who started this but this belief has caused more pain and suffering than all world wars put together it is the ridiculous false belief that you can get all of the nutrition that the human body needs just from eating food. You can't do it. It's impossible. It is impossible to fulfill the body's nutritional needs just by eating food. You can't do it. It is impossible. You cannot do it. What do you think about acidophilus and those types of probiotics? What is your stand about that? What is your experience and your expertise tell us? Well, they're fabulous. You know, the human digestive tract is this, you know, very complex organization of symbiotic bacteria and, uh, you know, digestive enzymes. And it's like one gigantic symphony, you know, all working together. And the human digestive tract is kind of like a shoebox, right? There's only so much room in that box. And in a healthy digestive tract, the shoebox is filled with a little bit of yeast, a little bit of fungus, and a little bit of bad bacteria, and mostly filled with beneficial bacteria, which in you know common parlance would be we refer to as acidophilus. So most of the shoebox, so to speak, is filled with beneficial bacteria, but. Just like in the world, you know, you know, back in the day, like in the gangs of New York, you know, it was all turf war between the Irish and the Italians and everybody else, right? And everybody marked out their own turf, right? Well, 
when the beneficial bacteria in your gut are eliminated, the bad bacteria that are in there all of a sudden have room inside of the box to grow. And so there's a turf war going on all the time. And one of the worst offenders, which eliminates the beneficial bacteria, is antibiotics. So when people go on antibiotics, especially for more than five days, the beneficial bacteria in your gut gets destroyed, and that gives the bad guys that are in your gut all the time room, a little window of opportunity to multiply and conquer, and then they will. And so, you know, in order to help your body fill its intestinal tract with the beneficial bacteria and kind of take back the high ground, you know, take back the territory, you know, I recommend you supplement with um, a good uh, probiotic. Um, I recommend people do that every time the seasons change, uh, you know, at the equinoxes and the solstices for one month. That's all you need is one month's worth of stuff. And the best time to take an acidophilus supplement is right before bed. So every time the seasons change, every night before bed for four weeks, take a really good probiotic and life is good. Interesting. And some people out there recommend first thing in the morning on an empty stomach. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is interesting. The basic idea with the probiotic is that, you know, you want it to get into your body through your digestive apparatus with as little um, digest, you know, you don't want your stomach acid to digest it. You don't want your pancreatic acid to digest it. So we try to sneak it in, um, you know, when your body is not busy digesting food. Interesting. Okay, I get it. All right, can I fight with you about something? <laughs> as much as you'd like. All yeah, right, I want to, well, yeah. I mean, I have my gloves on and I want to fight for something on this. Okay, okay good. Okay, I want to fight over olive oil. I'm upset because <laughs> I have olive oil two tablespoons a day in my salad. Yeah. And I just spoke with someone who got back from Israel the other day, and she said, I have to tell you, the olive oil you get here in this country yeah. is not anything like what we have there. Right. It's dark and unrefined. It's a totally different thing. Yeah. And she said, for example, the same bottle that you have would cost you $70. <laughs> okay? Yeah. My question is, you're saying one of the bad foods is olive oil. Now, I know that oils oxidize, and I totally get that. We've covered some of it with different guests. I did a whole show on coconut oil. I'm a lover of coconut oil. But why are you down on olive oil? Well, I'm not specifically down on olive oil. I'm down on all oils in a bottle. I don't care if it came from an olive, a canola plant, vegetable oil. I don't really care what the source of the oil was. I care about how it was bottled and stored, right? Now, if you're going to bottle, if you're going to squeeze oil out of an olive in a dark room and inject it into a bottle that's nitrogenated, so that there's no air inside the bottle and it's a dark bottle that's sealed from the light and then it's refrigerated, then I'm okay with that. But nobody does that. And you know, when you buy any oil that's in a bottle, it's oxidizing on the shelf. And it's a couple of interesting things to talk about when we talk about the oil specifically. Um, we could go a Particularly lot of Particularly olive oil because you know the Mediterranean diet, and it's well. It's, let me I mean, tell you about the Mediterranean are, diet. Yeah, again, let's, let's talk right? about it. So let's go there. So this is again a myth. 
I'm taking right, down is... my gloves. I'm taking right, off good. my gloves. I am well, deferring right. the punch to you. All right, we can hold hands then instead of try to fight each other. Okay, it's knowledge. I'm fighting for olive oil. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, here's so here's what you want to do: get some olive trees, grow them, squeeze the oil out of the olive yourself, and use it immediately after you squeeze it. Then there's no problem because it hasn't oxidized. It's not the oil; it's the oxidation of the oil. And by the way, when you heat an oil, uh, you radically increase oxidation, the oxidation time. Now, the problem with oxidized anything is when you consume an oxidized anything, you're pouring free radicals free radicals into your body and free radicals destroy tissue. Now, right. right, so we want to avoid free radical damage as much as we possibly can. And so one of the ways to do that is avoiding using any oil that's in a bottle. Eh, regretfully so. But here's the thing with the with the Mediterranean diet, right? Again... From the proper perspective, everything makes sense. And when you bite off half of the truth, chew it up and swallow it and think it's the whole truth, well, you're out of luck. So researchers years ago noticed that people who lived on the coastal areas of the Mediterranean lived about five years longer than people who lived inland. And that's statistically significant. So they tried to figure out why. And son of a gun, they found that people who lived on the coast ate more fruits, more vegetable, more fish, and more olive oil. Of course, this is the Mediterranean. Okay, so then they speculated, son of a gun, it that's where the whole Mediterranean diet came from. However, they neglected to read between the lines with the population on the island of Sardinia, which is off of the toe of Italy, because the people on the island of Sardinia lived five years longer than anybody on the coast. They were the longest lived people in the Mediterranean. And the only difference between the Sardinians and everybody else was the Sardinians didn't eat olive oil. They Are you it. serious? They lived on goat meat, you know, and root vegetables, right? They have very little olive oil consumption. And eliminating olive oil added five years to their life, but the researchers neglected that little data point. And also, when you look at the long-lived cultures around the world, the Bama people in southwest China, the Okinawans, the Georgians in Russia, the Vilcabambas in Peru, the Hunzas in Afghanistan, very little, if any, oil consumption at all. And, you know, these people are 105 years old. They've got no Walgreens. They've got no hospitals. They've got no health care. They've got no pharmacy. They've got no nothing. And they're lucky if they've got a roof over their head. Right. And they're the longest-lived cultures in the world. And one of the reasons was, by accident, they were eating food that was extremely rich in nutrients because of the soil that it was grown in. By accident, they were drinking beverages that were loaded with antioxidants, like red wine with snake skin in it and green tea or chocolate, if you're a Vilcabamba. Imagine that, chocolate. And they were, by, again, by accident, not eating foods that were harming the body. Anyway, so our basic message is this. When you stop consuming food that's hurting the body and nutrify the body every day with a good recipe of bioavailable nutrients, all 91 essential nutrients, game, set, match, you will optimize your genetic potential of 120 years. And that's our genetic potential, 120 years. We have the potential to make it to 120. We're lucky in this country if we make it past 75. You're right. 
It's just fascinating. All right, I'm putting my gloves back on for the next question. Let's go. <laughs> you say that the skin of a baked potato or yam or sweet potato is bad, but if you boil a potato, you can eat the skins. Can you explain this? I don't understand it. It's the heat that's the thing. When you bake a potato in the oven, the heat of the oven is much higher than it is if you boil it. And when you bake a potato, a yam or sweet potato, you know the skin gets crunchy. Right. right. When the skin gets crunchy, <clears throat> there's a chemical, a, a chemical is created from the carbohydrates in the skin. It's called a heterocyclic amine, a heterocyclic amine. Some people say heterocyclic amine, um, but it's a cancer-causing substance, which is caused by the intense heat, in this case, of the oven. Um, that doesn't happen if you boil the potato, the yam, or the sweet potato. So, What about steaming? Is that okay? No problem. Yeah, steaming is no problem. Yeah. So you can steam it, or you can boil it, and you can eat the skin. But if you bake it, you can just eat the guts of the potato, you know, the meat, so to speak, of the potato, not the skin, because the skin at that point is loaded with carcinogens. Fascinating. I know, isn't it? The devil really is in the details. It really is. And the, the irony is that just a few simple changes, just a few simple changes can add years to your life. For example, if, if everybody listening to this broadcast did one thing, no exercise, no yoga, no pranayama, no meditation, no prayer, no vitamin and mineral supplementation, no antioxidants, no dietary change except for this one thing, you would add approximately 10 years to your life. And what's the one thing? Stop eating fried food. If you just stopped eating fried food today, you'd add five to 10 years to your life, depending on how old you are right now. Because when you fry a food, a chemical is created in the food called acrylamide. And acrylamide is unbelievably bad for you. And it is bad. And if you look at a demographic of the United States, of you know how old, how long people live in the United States, from the Mason-Dixon line south through the old Confederate states into Florida, people in that part of the country die the quickest. They have the shortest life expectancies of anybody in the United States while outside of a couple of Indian reservations in the West. Those people have the shortest life expectancies because in the old South, they fry everything. I mean, they'd fry water in the South if they could. It's <laughs> part of the culture, right? It's just part of the culture, man. And when you consume that much fried food all of the time, you're loading your body with acrylamide, 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 and you're going to die. And by the way, here's another little tidbit, medical tidbit. That part of the country is, you know, has the shortest life expectancies of people in the U.S. It's also that part of the country that has the highest per capita percentage of medical doctors. Because medical doctors are like vultures. They go to where people are dying. What about eggs? What about One of the best foods anybody can eat unless you're allergic. Now, if you're allergic to a chicken egg, get a duck egg or a goose egg because you won't be allergic to those. But an egg is a perfect protein. It's the protein that all other proteins are compared to, the chicken egg. It's inexpensive. It's loaded with cholesterol. Loaded with cholesterol, let me say that one more time, loaded with cholesterol, which is very important and good for you, and there's no relationship between cholesterol and heart disease. It does not exist. 
Thank you for clarifying that because that has been a long-standing myth that most of us have been hypnotized by. It's crazy. And, and you know, we believe that Alzheimer's is a physician-created disease and is a cholesterol deficiency disease. And if you look at the statistics, you know, in the last 45 years of statin drugs, cholesterol-lowering drugs, fat-free diets and exercise, right, <clears throat> heart disease has remained unchanged, zero change. However, Alzheimer's has risen from obscurity to the fifth leading cause of death, fifth or sixth, depending on how you crunch the numbers. My mother died of Alzheimer's. Interestingly enough, the portion of the brain that's affected by Alzheimer's is made from cholesterol. So when you drive cholesterol into the ditch with statin drugs, your brain dries up and you get Alzheimer's. Also, your sex hormones dry up because all sex hormones are made from cholesterol. So if you're a man, you can't make testosterone, so you get erectile dysfunction. If you're a woman, you can't make progesterone, so you get hot flushes for five years instead of for two months like your grandparents. Why? Because you're driving cholesterol into the ditch. Why? Because you trusted your MD. Why? Because you've been brainwashed by 100 years of extremely effective propaganda. Knock it off. You want to have fun <laughs> with your MD? Ask him to provide documentation that proves Lowering your cholesterol has beneficial action on your heart. Cannot do it. Half of the people who have heart attacks have low or normal cholesterol levels. As a matter of fact, if you're a postmenopausal white woman, the research clearly shows that total cholesterol over 300, over 300 is cardioprotective. But you're not going to hear that on the ABC Evening News. You're not going to hear that in USA Today. Because the companies that make the statin drugs, you know, it's something stupid like $20 billion a year in statin drug sales. They have us all by the short and curlies, and you don't even know it. That's powerful. That's very powerful. I just did an interview with Dr. William Davis, who wrote the book Wheat Belly. Yeah. And we did a whole piece on wheat and the inside of it. I notice you cover it also extensively. One of the things I heard you say in one of the shows that you did was that children eat approximately six bowls of cereal a day. Is that really true? Yeah, the average, you know, and I think the statistic goes in the last 40 years, grain consumption in the U.S. has increased by 64%, I think, 60 to 65%. And the lion's share of that is teenagers with cereal consumption. The average teenager, six bowls of cereal a day. And, you know... From our point of view, the proteins in wheat, barley, rye, and oats are dangerous and deleterious and produce net negative physiological results. And, you know, in wheat, barley, and rye, the protein is called gluten, and the oatmeal protein is not called gluten, but, you know, gluten is a protein. So we advise nobody even look at wheat, barley, rye, or oats. That's right. You know, great. Right. So this is where everybody stops liking me. Dr. Glidden says, don't eat wheat, don't eat barley, don't eat rye, don't eat oats, don't eat olive oil, don't eat the skins of baked potatoes, don't eat fried food, don't eat well done red meat. You can eat red meat rare or medium rare. The same stuff that's in the skins of the baked potatoes is in well done red meat, heterocyclic amines. And last but not least, don't eat nitrates that are injected into meat because when those are heated, they turn into nitrosamines, which again are carcinogenic. Now that list of good food, bad food can be downloaded for free 
on the front page of my website, which is drglidden.com. That's D-R-G-L-I-D-D-E-N.com. And if you can't remember that, just do a Google search for Dr. Peter Glidden. I pop up number one all the time. And right there on the front page of my website, you can download that link for free. Good food, bad food, right? So, you know, again, this is my... Uh, you know, this is my curse, right? That we have to go around the country telling people, don't eat your bagels, don't eat your pizza, <laughs> don't eat your pancakes, for goodness sake. Well, thank God in this particular arena, you're not alone out there. You're not alone in the wilderness and <laughs> that you now have others who are part of the message and part of the scientific message of why yeah. the wheat and the grains and the other things that you're mentioning, like barley, oats, and rye, are deleterious for the body. It's such a pleasure to do this interview with you. You have a great personality. You're a lot of fun. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? One last thing. I've been practicing naturopathic medicine for 20 years now, and I've been in the trenches. You know, I've done homeopathy. I've done bioidentical hormones. I've done heavy metal chelation and mercury detoxification. I've done narrow reference range, uh, medical nutrition, you know, nutraceuticals. Uh, you name it, I've done it. Uh, and I know most of the big players in holistic medicine. I went to school with half of them. And as God is my witness, since I have been following Dr. Wallach's therapeutics and using Dr. Wallach's protocols, the results that I'm seeing with my patients are extraordinary and unbelievable. I've seen type 2 diabetes resolve. I've seen high blood pressure resolve. I've seen arthritis resolve. I had a patient that actually grew cartilage over a fake knee, right? He had a knee replacement, cartilage grew back over it. You wouldn't believe the things that I've seen people recover from it. And in his wisdom, Dr. Wallach chose to set longevity up as a grassroots business. There are less than, you know, 3,500 licensed naturopathic physicians in the world. And of those, there's less than 100 with more than 20 years of clinical experience. And of those with more than 20 years of clinical experience, there's only two, myself and Dr. Wallach, that give hundreds of free lectures around the country every year. And why do we do this? Because we are attempting to build a grassroots coalition of the informed. Because, you know, there, there aren't enough naturopathic doctors to help end human suffering. There just aren't. And the MDs, their therapeutics are failing us for chronic illness. So what are we going to do? Are you know, are we just going to get Dr. Wallach and myself and a handful of my buddies just going to get rich, you know, having private practices where we can treat 200 people a year? No, we're not going to do that. Dr. Wallach has developed easy to understand, easy to access, easy to use health recovery protocols. We have joint support protocols. We have blood sugar support protocols. We have blood pressure support protocols. You don't need a doctor's visit. You don't need an insurance copay. Get in touch with us. Get in touch with a longevity representative in your area because we're, we're in the business of training people in Dr. Wallach's health recovery methods because as crazy as it sounds, you have the, the potential of becoming the last best hope that your friends and family members and church members have to recover their health. Because we will teach you how Dr. Wallach's health recovery protocols, you know we're going to charge you to do that? $10.
It's a $10 one-time introductory fee. Join us. Join our cause. We can show you how to raise your friends and family and church members into health because we're dropping like flies in this country for one reason and one reason only, lack of knowledge. So get in touch with us. We'll show you how to lift yourself up into health. And if you want to join us, if you want to join our cause, I'd love to have you because, quite frankly, I need your help. I need as many of you to call me up and join our cause as is humanly possible because we're suffering in this country needlessly. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your time. Remember, I'm always, I'm a steadfast advocate for health. I'm Dr. Glidden. Just search me out on Google and uh, if you can email me, call me. I don't have, you know, office visit charges. You can just talk to me. Give me a shout. I'm happy. I'm here to help and I'm happy to help. I really want to thank James, one of our listeners, for taking her time to email us, talk on the phone with me, and send me the book, The MD Emperor Has No Clothes. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking to, learning from, and listening to Dr. Peter Glidden. Please pick up the book, The MD Emperor Has No Clothes. Everybody is sick and I know why. And also go to drglidden.com, D-R-G-L-I-D-D-E-N.com. Thank you, Peter, so much for being with us. It's been so enjoyable and very informative. God bless you. Kim, you are the greatest. Keep up the good work. Remember what Benjamin Franklin said. We better hang together because if we don't, most assuredly we will hang separately. It's rainmaking time. Thanks so much.